Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This week we look at the past and future of water use on the Colorado River. The Colorado River is often called the lifeblood of the western U.S., supplying water to tens of millions of people across seven states and Mexico. But a new book argues that science from a century ago predicted the river could not support as many farms and cities as boosters wanted. Development interests chose only the science that supported their plans, setting the stage for today's tense negotiations among water managers trying to make do with less water. AZPM's Vanessa Barchfield talked with John Fleck and Eric Kuhn, authors of the new book Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. Now, the widely told story of the Colorado River is that in the first half of the 20th century, when the river was being allocated and infrastructure built, there'd been a number of very wet years in the Colorado River Basin, which led us to think there was, of course, more water in the river than there actually is. That overallocation has left us today with what we call the structural deficit, meaning we take more water out of the river than goes in. Uh, you argue in your book that that narrative is wrong. Tell me about what was actually going on. It's true uh, that in 1922, when they got together to negotiate the compact, they'd only had a few gauges in the basin. It just so happens that we went into a wet cycle that began about 1903, 1904, 1905, and lasted to about 1930, and it was followed by the 1930s drought. So the narrative, of course, is, you know, you only had that 15, 20-year period before you got together for the compact, and that's the only gauge information you had. Well, that's not quite true, because beginning in the late 1870s, we started doing things like measuring the river stage at a, at a railroad gauge in Yuma. We knew about lake levels. We began looking at precipitation. The settlers kept good diaries, and it was a really, it was a dry period, really similar to the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s, from about the 1870s through 2000. So when you look at what the information we had beginning, say, in the mid-1870s up through 1920, you get a completely different picture of how much water was available in the river. And it's very similar to what we know 125 years later. It's about natural flow, which is unaffected by man, of about 15 million acre feet per year. And they thought there was at least 20, 18 to 20, you know, based on that, you know, two-decade wet period. And there were scientists at the time who were looking back at those earlier records before we had gauges. The U.S. Geological Survey, not sort of these fringe, flaky, lefty environmentalists, like, you know, real serious government scientists who were analyzing those droughts of the late 1800s and trying to explain to people that the gauge data alone was not sufficient and they need to under, needed to understand that there were significant dry periods over long periods of time that could be expected again in the future. And those scientists were ignored by politicians who liked the easy answer of a wet river in order to make the deal that they wanted to build Hoover Dam and the projects that were to follow. So was it just politically expedient to sort of accept this false narrative of the, of the river? It was both a, a politically expedient, but it was also easier to reach an agreement. It's like a little bit like a state or a federal budget. If you have more money to give out, in this case more water, 
you have more water to allocate and people are happier at the end of the day because they're getting a bigger piece of the pie. You know, so that was the goal. And there was also tremendous political pressure on them at the time to make an agreement. It was what was going on was there was development happening primarily in California, Southern California coastal plain. They needed power. There was flooding happening in Yuma and the Imperial Valley, and they needed reservoirs to control that flooding. Uh, irrigation was developing to a point where you needed reservoirs to regulate the supply. So there was tremendous pressure to get something done so they could collectively go to the United States Congress and say, you know, we're together. We want to pass some legislation to get federal dollars. So there was a competition for water and federal dollars. And of course, the more, the bigger the pot of water and the bigger the pot of federal dollars, the happier everybody is and the easier it is to make an agreement. And where do we find ourselves today as a result of all of this? Well, we wrote these water allocation rules in the Colorado River Compact and, you know, the federal legislation and court decisions that followed that allocated large amounts of water. We don't have that much water, but you have states and communities within those states across the Colorado River Basin who believed those bigger numbers and came to expect them, built cities, built farms, built dams, built canals, all premised on the idea that there was a larger amount of water than the river can provide. So you have a whole bunch of communities now who have this expectation that they're going to get this water, and they will say, but but it says in the compact we get X number of acre-feet of water, and the river really can't provide that. But each community says, yeah, but but we were promised. And so you have this tension between the expectation of more water and the reality of less water. And, and if you look at the struggle Arizona went through with the drought contingency plan over the last few years, the problems that that y'all have here in Arizona now are a direct result of communities believing those larger numbers and coming to expect that Arizona will be able to take 2.8 million acre feet off the main stem of the Colorado River every year, year in and year out. We now know that water just isn't there and coming to terms with how you shrink your water use footprint in Arizona. Here is the challenge that results of ignoring that inconvenient science from a century ago. And there's, a, there's also a lesson for the next 100 years because we also have the climate change right now. And we've started recognizing climate change in the early 80s, but it's really hit the basin hard in the last 20 years. One of the reasons we wrote this book is that we just like um, the decision makers and the policy makers ignored the so inconvenient science 100 years ago, the inconvenient science today is the climate scientists who are saying this is what is going to happen in the future. That really makes the political decisions difficult. And we wanted to point out what happens when you ignore the inconvenient science because we're concerned that we're in the same situation with the big exception. Back in 1920, the river was hardly used. There was, a, there, was, there was some use, but it was basically a big river at the time today. Every drop is used. Not a drop of water makes it to the to the Gulf of Baja California, the Sea of Cortez. You know, so if we do that again, we're just compounding the problems. I'm here with John Fleck and Eric Kuhn, authors of the book Science Be Damned: How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. 
And of course, negotiations are going to start soon over how the river will be managed starting in 2026. Um, given all of these considerations, climate change and you know the structural deficit on the river, what needs to change in terms of how the water is managed? And how should cities like Tucson that rely on the Colorado River uh, sort of manage our expectations? So... Communities like Tucson, and Tucson has actually been, I think, more successful than many, and certainly very successful in recognizing limitations, significant water conservation success here. Although if you look around the Colorado River Basin, almost every major municipal area is in fact using less water. So one of the first and most important things that we need to recognize heading into these negotiations is in fact, we all have can use less water and have successfully done that. Everybody's using less water, even though their population is growing. And I think this is not always well understood in our decision making. And so there's this feeling on the part of communities that they really need to hunker down and hang on to their share that was written into those laws because they're going to need more water. And we all need to recognize, you know, we can actually do pretty well with less. Tucson's a great example of that. Um, And then that recognition has to kind of scale up so that as we negotiate these new guidelines, representatives of each state have to recognize we're not going to be able to cling to the paper allocation that came out of the Colorado River Compact. We're all going to have to make do with less and thinking about how we back away from that and whittle down our shares and and develop better sharing arrangements among the states of each basin and across the boundary from the upper to lower basin so that we sort of share equally in the burdens and risks of climate change is going to be really important. And central to that is not ignoring inconvenient science. And, And fundamental to Western water law is a concept called prior appropriation. This is just a queuing system. Those who are first in, you know, to use the water are first in line. Uh, and the big irrigation districts like those um, uh, in the Yuma area, Imperial Irrigation District, Palo Verde, but in, in the upper basin as well, they were here first. Now comes along the cities um, that we've seen grow into millions of people on the Colorado Front Range, on the Wasatch Front, in Phoenix, uh, you know, in Southern California. They have the junior water rights. So one of the very difficult political questions, which you've seen here in Arizona, but it's not unique to Arizona. We have it in Colorado, we have it in Utah, we have it in everywhere, is how do we move water from the irrigation communities, the rural communities, into the urban areas, and how do we do that in an equitable way that respects the rural communities and just doesn't dry up agriculture and doesn't doesn't accentuate, if you want to call it, this urban-rural divide that we're seeing throughout many states like Colorado and Arizona. Do you see a future for agriculture in the, in the West? Oh, absolutely. I see a future. Um, we still, 80% of the consumptive use in the basin is still for agriculture. We could double the population of this basin uh, and still have a majority of the water going to agriculture. So I'm certain we're going to have agriculture, um, but it's going to be much smaller uh, than it is today because the river is going to be smaller and the people are going to use water, but they're going to use less. And I think that's our future. One of my favorite examples of how this can work is here in Arizona. It's the communities around uh, the community of Yuma and the areas around Yuma, the farming in Yuma County. Water use in Yuma County has declined by perhaps 30% since the 1970s. And the mix of crops have, has shifted 
um, from sort of predominantly alfalfa and cotton to the sort of lettuce empire, the winter vegetables that we're all eating um, um, at this time of year across the nation, they're coming from Yuma. And this was not a water policy process. This was the evolution of farming, and those farmers are smart, and they have figured out how to grow food that we want that feeds us and use less water in the process. And that's a model for how we can make this work. After having written this book, how are you guys feeling about the the future of the Colorado River? There's two things. One, uh, because of what we've talked about today and the cooperative efforts that uh, were unimaginable just 20 years ago, there's a positive thing. What concerns me is the uncertainty related to climate change. We're calling that deep uncertainty. But that means that the organizations that manage water have to be more flexible, and they have to have a much broader understanding. Um, they, ha- they need to be ready for a range of futures, and that's a change. And making that cultural change to how we manage water is not easy. And I'm optimistic because of the successes we've had, the fact that all these cities are using less water and that we have moved beyond, you know, the old narratives of fighting over water to collaborating over wa- around water in the Colorado River Basin. You know, and however messy the DCP process was, ultimately a collaborative solution emerged. You know, collaboration doesn't come without its share of conflict. And I'm optimistic that the institutions we've built and the processes that are underway can handle a lot. I'm frightened by the most extreme of the climate change scenarios. And so I think a part of this conversation has to be looking beyond ourselves to our communities and our elected leaders um, to take the steps necessary to try to reduce the risk of the worst outcomes by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. And we need to have that expectations of our political leadership because however much we as individuals can act to reduce our own greenhouse gas footprints, we need some broad systemic changes. And I think we need to keep that as part of the mix in the discussion here. John and Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. That was AZPM's Vanessa Barchfield talking with John Fleck and Eric Kuhn, authors of the new book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. This week, we're talking about the Colorado River, which provides more than a third of the total water supply for Arizona. Last week, a conservation advocate with the group Sustainable Rivers told the Arizona Daily Star that in order to balance the Colorado River's two reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Powell, in the long term, Arizona, Nevada, and California need to cut their total water use by 18% from the average over the last two decades. Tom Bischotsky is the director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources. He played a major role in last year's negotiation of the drought contingency plan. Bischotsky says his agency is well aware of the need to reduce our water use to help make the Colorado River sustainable and is planning for cuts of that size soon. We've already agreed in the drought contingency plan and 2007 shortage criteria to take more of a cut-like than that at lower elevations in Lake Mead. So yes, it is doable and it is possible for us to take those cuts. We've heard a lot about the drought contingency plan over the last year, 18 months especially. Uh, The states agreed to reduce water usage uh, from the river voluntarily to keep more water in those reservoirs. Where are we with the current DCP cutbacks that we agreed to in Arizona? 
So as of January 1st, Arizona is required to cut 192,000 acre feet out of its water supply of 2.8 million acre feet. That cut is falling on the Central Arizona project. They are leaving 192,000 acre feet of water they would otherwise divert in Lake Mead. It's important to note that through various voluntary conservation programs run by the Central Arizona Project starting in about 2014, that we've already been leaving about that much water in Lake Mead every year, in some years even a little bit more. So we've been prepared for this. We've shown we can live without it in the near past. And so we're in pretty good shape having taken that cut in 2020. You said we're in good shape for the the near future. I would assume your department is also looking at the long future. What is that long future look like uh, for those of us who live in Arizona? So again, when we looked at the drought contingency plan and the risks of Lake Mead falling to levels where really large shortages might impact the lower basin and Arizona, we looked at the hydrology in something called the stress test hydrology. It was uh, the recent 30-year past, essentially, and a, re- a substantial reduction over the historic record. So over a million acre feet less uh, of flow in the river, I think 1.4 million acre feet less than the historic flow of the river. The cuts that we put into place under the DCP reduce the risk of Lake Mead falling to those really low levels where we take huge cuts. They reduce that risk into the single digit range, seven or eight percent. That is where we thought we would be with the cuts we agreed to in 2007, knowing that things have gotten drier and we may be looking at a drier future. We agreed to do those additional cuts under the drought contingency plan. So we have taken additional measures to reduce our risk and again, Lowering that risk to single-digit probabilities is uh, a very substantial thing to do. Uh, And I think we are in solid shape out through at least the pendency of 2026, at which point the DCP uh, terminates, and we'll be looking at the next management phase for the Colorado River. You mentioned uh, things that the state is doing to reduce usage. For the average Arizonan, are those things they'll see? What are some of those things? So the immediate cuts that we're taking, the 192,000-acre-foot cut, that really is probably invisible to the average Arizonan because that is water that either we, the state of Arizona, or the federal government is putting under the ground and storing for future use, essentially, to backfill future cuts for tribes and cities collectively uh, within Arizona when shortages hit us on the Colorado River. You mentioned also that the drought contingency plan that was agreed to last year only lasts for a few years, and the state is already starting to think about what happens in 2026. How does the state get ready for those negotiations? We have modeling that can look out, and we look out as far as 100 years We know the skill level for that far out might not be as good as if you look out more recently, but there are different tools like that that we can use to estimate or project what kind of flows 
we might get out of the river, including looking at what climate change projections might do to flow in the river. To be prepared for what's next after 2026, we've already started that within the state of Arizona. So the general manager of the Central Arizona Project, Ted Cook, and myself, who are the co-chairs of the steering committee, a 38-member group that helped negotiate the Arizona Implementation Plan for the Drought Contingency Plan, have been reaching out, Ted and I have been reaching out uh, one-on-one with all of the delegates. We're speaking with them about what their perceptions are of the Drought Contingency Plan itself, how they think the 2007 guidelines are performing, how they think the Drought Contingency Plan is is performing, and what we might be looking at out into the future for guiding principles, so to speak, as we get involved in what might happen past 2026. We're talking with Tom Boschatsky, the director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources. When you're out talking to stakeholders, what are you hearing? One, the drought contingency plan has a lot of very creative and elements that work very well. But I think what we hear is we need to find ways to incentivize folks to leave their Colorado River water in Lake Mead through various programs. We're also hearing that folks in Arizona want equity between the users of Colorado River water, California, Nevada, and Mexico, and Arizona in the lower basin in terms of how shortages might be shared between those entities moving forward. When you say using less Colorado River water, leaving it in the lakes, does that mean Arizona starting to look at using more groundwater? So it depends on the program, but largely we have done a lot of conservation in this state and kept water in Lake Mead again since 2014 without having to actually increase the groundwater use. So basically, farmers farmers have fallowed land. Right now, the Colorado Indian River Indian tribes in the Parker area are fallowing farmland and not putting other water on that land. Um, So it's largely conserving water and not replacing it with groundwater. Do you see a need coming in the future as we're looking at water for a a re-examination of the Groundwater Management Act? Yes, we absolutely see that need. So one of the activities that occurred as part of the drought contingency plan on January 31st when the state legislation was passed to effectuate the drought contingency plan, Governor Ducey signed an executive order creating a Governor's Water Augmentation, Innovation, and Conservation Council. The councils met several times. One of the committees that was charged out of that uh, council is looking at what we might look at post-2025 for the active management areas, 2025 being the last current statutorily mandated management plan. So we are already embarking on what's next for the active management areas. There are some, of course, who say that needs to happen sooner than that. Uh, is this something that could happen sooner than that, or do we need to to just go with the schedule that's been laid out? So again, that committee was stood up in 2019. As that committee works through its process and looks at what might need to be done and what <clears throat> solutions might need to be effectuated, the committee will also be building up consensus for those activities, bringing 
those activities and suggestions back to the full council where more vetting will need to be done. And again, a process to build stakeholder support consensus in a way that if legislation is forthcoming, it has the support of the legislators and their constituents. So we could get done sooner than 2025, uh, but we have at least until 2025 to do this. Do you foresee limits on groundwater pumping in that new plan? So I do see limits, and there are limits today on groundwater pumping under the current Groundwater Management Act, and I see those continuing, and I see those potentially increasing uh, in different sectors, but that's something that needs to be worked out in terms of what is an equitable way to have those reductions be applied, what sectors, and how it actually gets done. We talked earlier with the authors of a book on the history of regulating the Colorado River. From your standpoint as the director of ADWR, what do you think we've learned from our decades of, of relying on the Colorado and sharing that river with all the basin states? Well, there's a lot of lessons, I think. I think we have learned since probably 1999 and gone down a path since 1999 that a better way to deal with the river was to collaborate and the states really since 1999 have collaborated and put together programs and plans that were agreed to ahead of time. We all have learned that litigation is not a path forward. It takes a long time. There are more winners and losers that way. It's not a good way to manage. I think more recently we have learned that there are other constituencies at play in the Colorado River than just the states. We have brought Mexico into the fold starting about 10 years ago or so. We have had tribes come to the fore, especially in Arizona, put their water on the table to help us balance Lake Mead and protect against shortages. And we've seen NGOs and that community come forth and partner with us as well. So I think those are some of the major lessons we've seen since 1922 when the compact was put into place. All right. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us. You're welcome. That was Tom Bashotsky, director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources. The state does limit groundwater pumping in five active management areas which correspond to urban centers. But in most of Arizona, there are no limits or reporting requirements for groundwater use. And that's the buzz for this week. Remember, you can share your ideas about what we should cover on the show on our website. Look for the Submit a Story Idea link at the top of the page. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.